0: I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice.
1: Those were the only books there were.
2: That's James Baldwin nearly 60 years ago from a clip of his conversation with conservative thinker William F. Buckley. It was 1965, and the two were in a debate at Cambridge Union. Listing today in 2024, Baldwin's words still resonate. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we bring you conversations that explore beliefs in our world and politics. This week, as the nation commemorates Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we are exploring the spirituality of two pillars of the liberation movement for civil rights— we begin with James Baldwin, born into a Pentecostal family in the Harlem of the 1920s. Many today may not remember that Baldwin was expected to become a preacher, like his stepfather. He did not follow that path. Instead, he found a mentor in Richard Wright, the author of the classic novel Native Son. At the age of 24 in 1948, Baldwin struggled. And as a black gay man, he made the decision to leave for Paris With $40 in his pocket, that journey abroad gave him the space and perspective to complete his first book, the autobiographical Go Tell It on the Mountain. It relates his struggles with his father's religion, which he abandoned as a very young man. But leaving the Pentecostal tradition was not the end of his spiritual journey. In his recent book, The Gospel, according to James Baldwin, Baylor University English professor Greg Garrett brings into sharp focus how faith and beliefs influence Baldwin's writing and relationships. Producer Kimberly Winston spoke with Garrett, who is also an Episcopal priest, from his home in Austin, Texas.
1: Greg Garrett, welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices.
0: Thank you so much.
1: I'm curious, what drew you to James Baldwin? Because on paper— the two of you have little in common
0: right i'm a straight white christian male and there are a lot of things about our history and our lived identities that that don't match up uh, whatever the sort of you know corresponding venn diagrams might be between mr baldwin and myself there is at the end of the day this incredible richness in his work and this universality that helps me to understand who i am as a human being, as a child of God, he is an advocate and a witness for me. And one of the reasons that I'm most drawn to Baldwin as a, a writer and a theological thinker is that he leans in the direction of hope and love instead of despair. Yeah. And day on day, I find that those are the things that I need if I'm going to keep walking around on the planet.
1: You're a person of faith, you teach at a Christian school. You have the title of canon theologian at American Cathedral in Paris. Baldwin, by contrast, was raised in the black church and famously left it. Yeah. What do you find in James Baldwin, then, that speaks to your
0: faith? He would have said that he continued to be a preacher and a witness and he often thought about himself sort of tangibly as a prophet. On more than one occasion, he talked about how he saw himself as a sort of Jeremiah. Mm. I was not raised in Harlem. I was not in a, you know, a, a Pentecostal church, but I was raised in a conservative Southern Baptist environment. And in my own life, I was outside of the church for 25 years mm. until I found a way back into some kind of formal faith. And, and that is not a thing that Baldwin ever did. But as as you look at his work, which partakes so powerfully of biblical themes and images and references to black spirituals, I have this very strong sense of him as someone who left the church but could not leave his identity as, as a person of faith entirely behind. I think especially about an open letter that Baldwin wrote uh, to Desmond Tutu toward the end of his life. The opening sentence of that open letter to Desmond Tutu says, I am not a person of faith. And then he stops and he backtracks a tiny bit and he says, I am not a churchgoer. Yeah. And in his closing in the letter, he says, Yours in the faith. Yeah. And, and so what, what I like to think is that there was this image of Jesus that Baldwin continued to bear, even though he could not find himself a part of a formal religious tradition. And and I like to think that if Baldwin had had the benefit of James H. Cone or Mm. Kelly Brown Douglas or any of the great black liberation theologians, if he had known that there were these options for being a person of faith that didn't match up in that way that he found soul-killing and repressive, then I I think that there might have been these possibilities. And throughout his life, there were a couple of images and ideas that he continued to reflect on. uh, The idea of the New Jerusalem and the idea of the, the welcome table.
1: Define for us what is the New Jerusalem and what is the welcoming table.
0: In the Christian tradition there is this idea of the new Jerusalem. It's the idea that Jesus came to inaugurate a new way of being that is not yet complete and may not be complete in this reality. Mm-hmm. And so this, this idea, this hope that we are going to arrive in a place that is better, more just, more loving than the reality that we are a part of right now. So that, that is the idea behind the new Jerusalem. And then the welcome table is particular to Baldwin, but it's also particular to me because I came back to faith in a historically African-American church. There is a, a beautiful black uh, spiritual called I'm going to sit at the welcome table. Episcopalian and the communion table is at the very heart of who we are and what we do in worship and how we understand God. What Baldwin was thinking about in that spiritual was that there will come a day when our our received identities will fall away, and we will gather at the table together, and we will not be black or white, you know, Jew or Greek. We will not be male, female, or uh, anything else. We'll just simply be, if you will, children of God. So with the New Jerusalem and, and with the welcome table, he he was talking about his deeply held beliefs, that however difficult this life might be, however much racism and injustice had shaped uh, his understanding of the world, as he, he often said, he believed that we were capable of more and better.
1: Explain for us why Baldwin left the church. He left before he was 20, did he not?
0: That's correct. And the reasons that he left are largely around what he perceived as the failure to love. Right. When he reflected on his his upbringing in the church, he said, we were, we were taught that we were to love everybody. And whoever else did not believe that, I did. And it, it was most powerfully manifested because... As a teenager, he was also attending this amazing public high school where many of his friends were Jewish. And he talks about, in The Fire Next Time, how one of his dearest friends came to visit him at the house. And his stepfather asked him if his friend was saved. Right. And and what he said was, no, he's Jewish. And his father took umbrage and slapped him. and. He, Baldwin talks in The Fire Next Time about how finally the, the dividing lines had been drawn for him. And he asks, am I supposed to celebrate the fact that this good person who I love is supposed to be doomed, is supposed to be condemned to hell? That doesn't feel like love to me. Right. And Baldwin realized that he no longer believed in this exclusive gospel, if you will, that that condemns so many people who don't follow it. And so he stepped out of the church and then there's there's such a loneliness when I when I look at Baldwin. He was seeking community and he found it in, in every place that he could. We we need a community that affirms us and sees us. And, and that was something that I feel like he was seeking for much of his life, and didn't always find it where he was.
1: He was outside of formal religion, yes, but he never gave up a belief in God. What was it about faith and spirituality that you think had a hold on him?
0: I think the big piece for him was that as he looked at the world, he understood how many things were not working, and all the different ways in which people failed and the hierarchies and the injustice and the racism. What what he was saying to his nephew James, uh, reflecting on the racism of white people, was he was talking about how white people are trapped in an in their own way in the racist history of America. And and so what he said to his nephew James is that we have to love them, like genuinely love them, because we're trapped in this reality, but they also are trapped in it. And we can't move forward together until we are released from this history, until we face up to it, uh, until people who look like me repent of it. But at the heart of it is that, that idea of love because we are all in chains because of this racist and unjust history that Baldwin writes about in The Fire Next Time. But even early on, you know, in 1963, 60 years ago, when he is writing to his nephew in the opening seven pages of The Fire Next Time, he's saying, James, his namesake nephew, who was 14 at the time he was writing, we have to love these people. Because they are trapped, as we are trapped, in this reality, in this history. And One of the things that he writes about over and over again, and it's a particularly strong strain in The Fire Next Time, is that any kind of faith that invites people to hate or exclude is a false kind of faith. And so he, in the first part of that book, he compares the churches that he understood, the white church and the black church in Harlem that he grew up in. And in the second part of the book, he talks about the nation of Islam, which Basically, just sort of flips the script, uh, and and there is a, a supreme being in place and a different set of people who should be marginalized, and so you know the Nation of Islam is teaching how uh, white people should be driven into the sea, right? And and so so Baldwin's early understanding of faith is that any faith that requires us to hate or exclude is a bad. Version or vision of faith. And one of my favorite uh, sections of The Fire Next Time is that he talks about our vision of God. And if our vision of God doesn't enlarge us and make us better and more compassionate, then we should get rid of that vision of God. Mm. So I think to the end of his life, he held this belief that, you know, whatever force it is that's at the heart of the universe, that it's a force of hope and justice and love. And he is holding out the hope for reconciliation and repair. He's he's holding out that possibility of love, even, even though it is the most challenging thing that we can imagine. And at the end of his life, he is still writing about this possibility that someday we're all going to live together and love each other. Mm. Every age is an age of Baldwin. Yeah. And so he, he speaks into the age of Trump in, mm-hmm. a, in a way. He's spoken to the age of Kennedy in a way. And, and because he is this universal literary artist, one of our greatest literary artists, he's going to speak into whatever comes next. Mm-hmm. But I, I am feeling particularly drawn to Baldwin right now in terms of that, that emphasis on love, the primacy of love, and, and the importance of history and our reckoning with it.
1: If James Baldwin came back today, if he could see us today, would he be discouraged? Would he be surprised? What do you think?
0: Mm. Well, he would not be surprised, I Mm. think. You know, what what he was writing in 1963. So this is the 60th anniversary of The Fire Next Time. The, The number one book in America. On top of the New York Times bestseller list, on the New York Times bestseller list for 41 weeks. Realistically, 60 years on, he, you know, he would be disappointed, and, and you know, I think he would look at the election of Barack Obama as so many of us did as a, a milestone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, he was savvy enough, an observer of culture, to know that there is going to be a pushback to that. What I think about in terms of how Baldwin would understand our present, uh, he was writing in the 1960s about racist politicians, and he was writing about racist rhetoric. I think that he would recognize many of the ways in, in which people are weaponizing their public personas, their public speech. And and, and I, I, I do trust that he would be disappointed, as I'm sure we are disappointed, we thought we might be in a different space, you know, six, seven, eight, 10 years ago. But I I think that he would recognize both the the reality of this present because it would be so familiar to him from the fifties and sixties. But I, I think that he would still continue to live into that, that hope and opportunity. Um, Because even, you know, late in his life, after everything he had seen, he would, he would, he would witness what was happening. And he would still say, we could do better. I I also believe that as Baldwin believed that we can do better and that at the end of the day, you know, we were called to love everybody. Whoever else did not believe that, I do. I think that I would just want to hold up Baldwin as this incredibly important literary and cultural figure. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how diminishing it is to talk about someone as a black writer or a woman writer or a gay writer. Baldwin, very simply, is one of the greatest writers in American history. And when we talked about The Fire Next Time earlier, I am drawn more and more to that opening letter that he writes to his nephew, James. And the trade paperback, it's seven pages. Mm. But I would hold those seven pages up against any seven pages written by any American writer. So, you know, wow. Toni Morrison, William Faulkner, Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, it is it is so incredibly crafted. Mm. And, you know, you were asking about, you know, where can people go to take a, a look at Baldwin on faith, But I, I would just say anybody that wants to read Baldwin should start with that first essay in The Fire Next Time, because it encapsulates so many things, so many themes so beautifully there. There is not to my mind, a better written piece of American prose ever. And, mm. and so Baldwin is just is somebody operating at the top of his game in order to elevate all of us who read him to the top of our games, to, to love, to be more compassionate, to seek justice. I, I, I note in the book that I have had at least one book by Baldwin in my backpack every single day for the last 10 years. Yes. And short of short of my scriptures, there is no figure in my life that I turn to more often for wisdom than the works of James Baldwin. Wow. In terms of my own faith and my faith tradition, because I'm Episcopalian, I do not think of LGBTQ issues as in any way a bar to faithful life. Many of the most faithful Christians, faithful Jews that I've ever known have been gay. And so that, that for me is not an issue, although I know it is to people from my, my tradition growing up in the Southern Baptist Church. But we also had a very different understanding of saints in the Southern Baptist Church growing up. We did not think about, you know, the, the Catholic idea of saints as, as people who could model for us what it means to live a faithful life. And so your question about how can I think of Baldwin as a saint? Very simply, I think of, some, of him as someone who believed that he was called to be a witness. And as I've said, I don't think of him as perfect. I know him too well to think of him as perfect in any, in, in any way more than I think of myself as perfect. But there's a there's a couple of lines laid in the book that I think sort of encapsulate what I believe about Baldwin as a person who wanted to witness to the truth and wanted to, to demonstrate the courage of his convictions, even when it was difficult. Here, here's something that I wrote toward the end of, of the book. Saints are not saints because they're picture perfect. They're saints because they show up and put their hands in the real and get them dirty. And they're saints because they inspire us. So, you know, I don't pray to blessed, you know, James of Harlem, in in the way that maybe my Catholic friends might to, to their canonical saints. But I very much think of him as a person who can inspire me and us to be our best, most courageous, most loving, most compassionate selves. And out of the imperfection of his life, out of his despair, he wrestled with mental health issues, out of the injustice he experienced and the grief that he felt, over the loss of some of the most important figures in his life and in American history, he continued to show up and to do the work and to be faithful to his gifts. And I, I think that there is no higher sort of acclaim than to say, I think of James Baldwin as a saint because I aspire to be more like him. And I feel like if I could do that, I would draw closer to the god who i understand and and want to serve.
2: We've just heard producer Kimberly Winston's conversation with Baylor University English professor Greg Garrett. He's the author of the gospel according to James Baldwin. When we come back from this short break, religious studies scholar Dr. Lewis Baldwin talks about what he sees today, looking back at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s concept of truth. It's a subject he explores in a book released in 2023 that examines how King used the metaphor of the Ark for both justice and truth. Stay with us. I'm M. Breen Khan, and this is Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between.